Hello and welcome to the Tech Dirt Podcast. I'm Mike Masnick. The world is increasingly technological. So we have better get methodical. Bring in precision to critical digital journalism with the singular vision of the modern monocle. Stopping the copyright bullies from pulling the wall on us. Painting and taking on all the plates who pay to troll. Document the ways that they aim to take control. Scrutinize and brutalize and make them fall. If we don't stand up to them, someone will get hurt. To grab a shovel and dig up the tech. If we don't stand up to them, someone will get hurt. To grab a shovel and dig up the tech. Uh, today, we have a returning guest to the podcast uh, who probably needs little introduction for this particular audience. Uh, Corey Doctorow is an author and an activist and is involved in many different wonderful projects and experiments. Uh, but today, we're going to be talking about his latest one. Uh, as you probably know and hopefully have read, uh, among Corey's many books are the uh, young adult novels Little Brother and its sequel Homeland. Uh, published in 2008 and 2013. Uh, and based on those dates, uh, you might have noticed that it was about time for a third in the series, and that is soon to be released. Uh, Attack Surface will be published by Tor in the US and Canada and Head of Zeus in most of the rest of the uh, English-speaking countries around the world. Uh, as per usual, though, Corey is not just releasing a new book, but he's trying to do something important with this release. Uh, he's gone to Kickstarter to let people pre-order the audiobook uh, and the ebook as well. Uh, but this isn't just a typical Kickstarter crowdfunding trying to drum up interest type of campaign. I think Corey is trying to make a point about audiobooks and DRM and Amazon. Uh, and I could explain all of that, but why bother when Corey will do a much better job of it? So, Corey, welcome back to the podcast. Well, thank you. You know, it's funny to hear you say, like, hi, this is Mike Masnick, and welcome to the Tector podcast without hearing Dan Bull going, like, the world is increasingly <laughs> technological. <laughs> Well, well, that will be inserted. Everybody else will have heard that. <laughs> I know, I know. So here's here's a little peek behind the magic. Dan Bull is not on the line, holding on to his microphone, ready to rap for us. Wait, that's what we should do, honestly. If uh, like like the late night TV uh, uh -huh, shows, like like uh, what's his name, the Paul. Paul, what's his name? He used to be on, yes. on um, uh, Letterman, uh, the Canadian guy. Yes. All I know about him is he's Canadian because that is all Canadians. <laughs> not the name, nothing. Just he is Canadian. Yes. And I feel dumb that I, I cannot. Paul Schaefer is his Paul name. Schaefer. And he played with the Blues Brothers <laughs> Band, also helmed by a Canadian. How could I have forgotten? <laughs> yes. So we do not have Dan Bull ready to go, but everyone will have heard Dan Bull and, and his You should lovely... do it for like a live show. You know, um, like I think that at one point uh, – um, Sawbones got the taxpayers to show up and play the medicine before one of their shows oh, even live. Yeah, that you you absolutely should at some point get, do a do a live show in London and get Dan to show up if they're still in <laughs> London when the plague ends. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> that's right. Uh, anyways, um, yes. Well, welcome back to the podcast with <laughs> thank without, you <laughs> with Corey Doctorow and without Dan Bull. <laughs> um, so or uh, are we? The world is increasingly <laughs> technological. <laughs> That's right. Uh, <laughs> uh, this is what happens when we record on a Friday late afternoon. afternoon. Yeah. <laughs> I haven't even gotten into the whiskey yet. <laughs> yes. Me neither. But it's, it's still late Friday. So uh, uh, though people will not hear this until next week. Um, now, I know that typically the way these kinds of things go is I would ask you to talk about the book. But I am going to save that. We will talk about the book itself later. 
I want to jump ahead and say, let's talk about the crowdfunding campaign and what it is that you're trying to do with it. Sure. So for that, I do have to talk just a little about the book, which is that, which is that, um, you know, it's a book that would, under normal circumstances, have commanded a pretty high price for the audio rights separate from the print rights. The print rights went for mm-hmm. six figures. It was a very good book deal. The previous two books were New York Times bestsellers to option for film, you know, translated into dozens of languages, bestsellers in hardcover and paperback, you know, just generally like, like good earners for my publisher, but they were not interested in my audio rights. And the reason they're not interested in my audio rights is because I won't let my audio books or any of my other books be sold with DRM. And there is to a first approximation, only one audiobook retailer, which is Audible, <laughs> which commands 90% or more, depending on your vertical, of the audiobook market. And they have a mandatory DRM policy. And my publisher is not a charity. And one of, one of their authors says to them, you can adapt this work of mine for a medium, but you must not use the retailer that controls 90% of the market. Uh, they are understandably not enthusiastic about that right. proposition. So I have done a, a couple of independent audiobooks before. Um, I got Will Wheaton to read Homeland and to read my nonfiction book, Information Doesn't Want to Be Free. And I got uh, Will and Amber Benson and Myron Willis and, and some others to read Walk Away. Uh, Amanda Palmer and I can't even remember all the people. Gabrielle DeQuere, who were all on that one. And so I'm pretty familiar with the production and all of those books earned out in the sense that, you know, I paid however much it's sort of depending on the amount of cast members and the length of the book between 10 and $20,000 to produce those books. And they've made 10 or $20,000 both through direct sales on my own website and through selling on all those minority platforms, uh, Downpour and, and Libra.fm and uh, more recently Google Play, which is a, a new entrant to the market that unlike Amazon will allow you to go DRM free, but has not gotten a lot of traction for, for audiobooks yet. And um, I, I knew that I could just do that again. Mm-hmm. But I, I, I really want to show that, on the one hand, authors can get around the monopolist and do well, right? Not just recoup for an audiobook, but actually make significant profits. And to show that in a public way that would encourage, on the one hand, my publisher to back the next one, right? To, to, to actually like buy the rights and do the production and, and help me with a crowdfunder beforehand because it's a lot of legwork. And, and on the other hand, inspire other best-selling writers to do this. And, and here's my theory, is that best-selling writers do have the leverage. They can reach their audience directly. They know how to do it. This is one of the great, uh, amazing things about the digital age is that there are these direct channels between authors and their audiences. And if you can reach your audience directly, and if you can out-earn what you would make if you went through the monopolist and, and surrendered your, uh, your, your property, your, your copyrights to, your, to, your, uh, to, to their DRM and locked it forever to their platform, then why wouldn't you, right? If you mm-hmm. can make more money and also not subject yourself to the indignity of having your work locked to their platform for all eternity, even beyond the duration of copyright, why wouldn't you? And if that is the case, and if in the afterlife of all of these books that get crowdfunded and go around the monopoly, those books are for sale on all of the minority platforms, Libro and Downpour and Google Play and whatever, but they're not for sale on Audible, then Audible exclusive starts to mean something different. It means a book that is not for sale on Audible, right? And, And if all of the bestsellers are not for sale on Audible, well, then there is a real good reason for Amazon to change its policies. And if authors have some leverage, my hope is that we can go beyond... Uh, uh, DRM policy and actually get them to undo their atrocious stance on libraries where 
neither mm -hmm. Kindle nor Audible originals are for sale at any price to libraries. You know, people get very upset at my publisher, Macmillan, because they had some, frankly, terrible policies about how they would sell stuff to libraries. But they would sell stuff to libraries. Right. More than half of the best-selling audiobooks in the world are not available at any library. And Amazon's answer to libraries who say, my patrons would like to check out your audiobooks, is uh, they should just get an Audible subscription. Right. Why should they just get that as part of their taxes and as part of a public sphere using a library, an institution that not only predates Amazon, but predates copyright and publishing and paper and bound books, you know, <laughs> when we as a tech monopolist have gotten some callow lawyer to draft this garbage novella of legalese that overrides 7,000 years of human history, <laughs> surely that's the most important thing happening in this, in this world. So I, I, you know, I think that like, and this is where we maybe we can dovetail a bit into the theme of the book, but I think that there is this disease that we think that um, all of our problems are, are the result of individual actions and that they all have individual solutions. And a lot of what's going on this year with things like Black Lives Matter and so on is this, is this sense that maybe we have systemic problems that have systemic solutions and not individual ones. Maybe you can't recycle your way out of climate change. Maybe you, you can't shop your way out of monopoly capitalism. But every now and again, there are points where individuals do have leverage, right? where, where if you can actually like tip the market away from Amazon in a way that really gets at something that matters to them, maybe we can actually bend their conduct, not fix their monopoly, but fix their conduct a little bit at the margins such that their monopoly is less important in one small way. Mm-hmm. All right. <laughs> so it, it um, do, you, do you have any sense why Amazon is so insistent on, on having DRM on their audiobooks? Well, uh, I think that the history of DRM and Amazon uh, really uh, tells the tale. I actually have a column up in uh, in Publishers Weekly that just went up today on Friday as we're recording, and so your your audience can can pick it up on Monday. Maybe you can see in the show notes called "We Have to Talk About Audible," that recounts some of this history. So to understand the history, you have to look at um, Amazon's digital distribution history, and to understand that, you have to know about iTunes. So iTunes kicks off at this moment where. Um, most of the music is not available on any digital platform. To the extent that it is, it's very hard to use. The catalogs are really fragmented. The labels all want their own catalogs. And, and, and you know, it's, it's posed against the background of Napster and the P2P wars, where, mm -hmm. where you can get everything you want for free, but if you want to pay, you can't get anything. And so Steve Jobs comes along, and he does this sell job, and he convinces them that DRM will make it safe to distribute on iTunes. And so the labels, I think there were five then. There's three now. Uh, the labels all go in with Steve, and they make the music collections available, and it has Apple's DRM on it, and it's locked to Apple's platform. And they start to realize, as time goes by, <laughs> and they start to have demands that are not really you know, in line with Apple's uh, attitudes, like maybe they want some albums to be sold as album only uh, within a certain release window, or you know, some other thing that you and I might not like, but which you know, they, as people who had run this fairly concentrated industry were accustomed to being able to do, to being in charge of their own destiny. And, and they say to Apple, we would like to do this. And Apple says, yeah, no, we're, we don't do it that way. And they say, well, then we're going to tell our customers to go to one of your rivals. And Apple says, yeah, good luck with that, because we're not going to let them take their iTunes with them. Right. <laughs> and so Amazon comes along and perceives an opportunity. And they launch the Amazon MP3 store in 2008. And its slogan is DRM should stand for don't restrict me. 
and they say DRM is an evil. All it does is unduly restrict our customers. We hate DRM. Come to our platform. And they eat Apple's lunch. And the DRM store uh, ends up with iTunes dropping its DRM. And today, like, DRM on music is effectively a dead letter, at least on downloadable music. It's just right. gone. Um, and around the same time, within months of this, they buy Audible, which is this scrappy but promising audiobook retailer that has this DRM that it puts on all of its books. And, and it has it there to assuage the fears of New York Publishing, which at the time was, uh, I believe, six publishers. Now it's down to five. It's probably going to be four soon. Uh, and, uh, and, and they, um, they buy out Audible and they say at the time, we're going to get rid of Audible's DRM. You know, if the people don't like it, we won't have it. Why would we need it? We don't like DRM. So it's been 12 years and we're still waiting. (laughs) They haven't done it. And I think the difference is dominance versus insurgency. When you are the insurgent offering DRM free makes sense because you have customers and suppliers who chafe at being locked in. But when you are the dominant actor, then lock-in serves you. And, you know, it's pretty clear, like, their story has been, oh, well, the DRM protects our suppliers, right? They, we, they protect publishers and authors. But, you know, it takes one Google search to find out how to remove Audible DRM. And it takes one more Google search to find all of Audible's books with the DRM already removed available for download. Right. And so it's pretty clear it's not protecting anyone except Audible, which is gaining this permanent advantage because the DRM is not tied to the term of copyright. So, you know, if we can imagine that there's still a planet in 70 years, which is like, I don't know, <laughs> a, a semi-good bet. So say I drop dead this year, which is a pretty good bet, and that there's still a planet in 70 years, which is an okay bet, uh, given the current state of the universe. <laughs> so th- at that point, my works are going into the public domain, and my daughter, if she has survived and is not preoccupied with digging through rubble for canned goods, she will have the... <laughs> She will, she will be losing her control over my copyrights, which she will have had for the 70 years after my death. Right. And at that point, those works will all be in the public domain. But if Amazon is still around in 70 years, I don't know, like flying drones over a blasted hellscape <laughs> delivering goods to people from their slave labor camps in their warehouses, um, then they will still have the power to decide whether or not the DRM can be removed because so long as that DRM is protecting some copyrighted work, maybe the copyrighted work of someone who outlives me by a year, Mm -hmm. then giving someone a tool to unlock Amazon's DRM will remain under the DMCA, a felony punishable by a five-year prison sentence and a $500,000 fine for a first offense. Yes. (laughs) Yes. <laughs> and this is this is the problem of, of DMCA 1201. Uh, yes, it certainly is. Well, no, this is just the tip of the iceberg. The real problem of DMCA 1201 is you can't fix a Medtronic ventilator without well, yes. risking felony prosecution. This is, this is just like tinkering in the margins. This is just the made-up fairy tales we used to pass the long slog from the cradle to the grave. You know, when it's your artificial pancreas, that's the problem with DMCA 1201. Fair enough. Fair enough. I think that's, that is, that is a, 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 a better point. Um, I was just thinking, actually, I, I had just taken out uh, an ebook from from my local library, um, and I did notice that they they tried to push the the Audible audiobook with the the ebook that I took out, and I was confused and nervous about what they were trying to push on me. 
and therefore I, I rejected it. They were saying you can get the, the audio book free with the ebook. And I was, I oh, was, it probably signs you up for an audible. That's what uh, I was, yeah. that's what I was thinking. And I was like, is I that don't... SFPL? Uh, no, it's, it's not. It's, it's the peninsula library system down uh, south of San yeah, Francisco. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, I'm not surprised. I mean, that is, that is a, effectively their vision is to take everything that is a public service, including the post office and turn <laughs> it into a private service that just funnels money into, into the, you know, yeah. gaping maw that is Seattle. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I was just, I, it just sort of popped up and, and, you know, I just assumed that there was some sort of catch and I didn't really, I wasn't planning on listening to the book anyways. And, and I didn't want to go through the fine print and figure out what, what I was signing up for to get the audiobook. But anyways, yeah, uh, we're, we're moving away from, from the, right. Thing. So, so you launched your Kickstarter and the idea is to get people to, to, to get lots of people to understand these things and to show that a DRM free audiobook is something that has value that people will back and people will buy and hopefully to shift the market in some manner or another. Uh, and how's it going? Yeah, it's going really, really well. I haven't hit reload in a while. Excuse the keyboard noise. I'm going to hit reload <laughs> here. I have a really clacky keyboard and it keeps me from secretly typing while I'm on the phone. <laughs> it makes me focus. Uh, $208,636 across 4,694 backers with 19 days to go. So this is uh, 11 days, eight, no, nine, 10 days into the, into the Kickstarter. Very good. That seems like yes. a, a pretty pretty good amount. Did you, did you It's have... a very good number. Now, like before anyone gets too excited and asks me for a loan, uh, <laughs> not all of that money is mine. So yes. the the I'm retailing the ebooks and this is a thing I've I've done for my publishers for a long time. Uh, I built a, a little e-commerce site, or I commissioned someone, uh, Rachel Wilmer in, in Edinburgh, to build this little e-commerce thing for my WordPress site called Shut Up and Take My Money that uh, sells you all of my ebooks on behalf of my publishers, irrespective of where you are in the world. And then I figure out which publisher gets the money based on where you are. Mm -hmm. And so the way that that works is I take the 30% that Amazon would normally take for the electronic goods. And then I remit 70% to my publishers. And then they send me back 25% of that 70% so, uh, as my royalty. So it works at 47.5% of that. So, so I, 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 this is actually, I mean, I've talked to you about this in the past, but, but I actually think this is fascinating. So I want to, I want to slow down a little bit and go back over sure. this because I, I think a lot of people don't know that one, that you do this or that this is even doable. Uh, and I mm -hmm. think it's really interesting, uh, as a side note. And again, this is not something that's new. This is something you've done for a while, which is that you, you know, when you sell eBooks directly off of your site, you are acting as the Amazon for those eBooks, right? So you are the retailer. You've effectively set up your own retail shop. And and in some ways, that's kind of, that feels both weird and also somewhat mind-blowing at the same time. That's why I... <laughs> I, I well, <laughs> so have you ever, have you ever seen a speaker, often it's like a business book speaker more, more often than anything else, who shows up and does like a hotel ballroom talk and in the trunk of their hatchback are like uh -huh. nine boxes of their own books and they sell them at the end and then they pack them back up again. They're, that's effectively the same thing, right? right. The difference is that, uh, they, that like, those are physical objects. So, you know, in right. this case, like my publisher just has to trust that I'm accurately accounting to them. <laughs> right, right. Yeah, but it is it, it does strike it still strikes me as interesting, right? Because you are then you're you're sort of, you know, taking the the retail price and then sending money back to the publisher who then sends money back to you as your royalties, which are 
separate from the the money yes. that you're making is the yeah retail. i wear two hats here but yeah. that's the, i mean that's that's the case well actually i tell a lie i don't know if that is the case i think if you buy lots of discounted books from your publisher that you don't earn a royalty on them i think that mm -hmm. one of the ways that you get your discount from your publisher is that they are not counted as royalty earning right. copies and but I, I i wouldn't swear to it but i think that is the case i've never i mean i think Every now and again, they'll write to me and they'll say, like, the paperback's out and we got a couple extra boxes of hardcovers in the warehouse. Do you want to buy some cheap? And sometimes I'll buy, like, an extra box. But I don't mm -hmm. make a habit. I have, I have like, giant industrial shelving in my office <laughs> filled with thousands of my books that I got anyway in languages that I don't speak. <laughs> and so I don't need more boxes of my own books. Right. They're nice, they, but they were a lot more impressive when there was, like, three of them and it felt really cool. And now that there's, like, 25 of them, uh, I am starting to appreciate the fact that this is just going to be a giant moldering pile of dead trees that my daughter is going to have to figure out what to do with after I die of coronavirus. There we go. <laughs> or, or whatever kills me but right. at this rate, given, given, given the public health response. Yes. That's what my money is on. Yes. Yes. Well, wear a mask, stay inside. Um, yeah. so, so inject bleach. Yes. Yeah. No, don't inject bleach. Please do not. Do not do that. Uh, you're going to get us banned from whatever podcast. Uh. <laughs> uh, um, so, and so you you actually published in one of the updates to the Kickstarter. You actually went through like the breakdown of of you know the different percentages of all the money, and it's complicated. And we're not going to go through it all here. Yeah. But but if people want to see, like I, I actually found that fascinating um you know the specific breakdown of of you know what things make how much money and which what percent goes to whom uh and how all that works out and i thought that was that was interesting and a nice bit of transparency that we don't often see yeah. from, from others yeah and then you know the, the other piece that we have mentioned is that the royalty that i get from my publisher before it shows up in my door, 15% is deducted by my agent who earns every penny. But that's that's another piece that comes out. It's one of the things I actually like about this model. So I get a lot of value out of my publisher, like the editing, the promotion, mm -hmm. the uh, you know physical editions, the kind of continuity and attention to detail that I have a hard time with because I've got my irons in a lot of fire, all that stuff. And I get a lot of value out of my agent. And this hybrid model where I am acting as a retailer and using the kind of moral tale about buying direct from the author still kicks in all of those other people. They right. get their normal share the way that it would through any kind of retail transaction. It's, it's a very beneficial arrangement and it aligns everyone's interests very well. And, and so... I assume you, you explained to them all your plan to do this. How, how did they respond? They were very enthusiastic. So I have to say Macmillan has always been incredibly supportive from the very top. Uh, John Sargent, who left the company this week, but who every time I, I went to New York, I would sit down with Sargent for a while and talk to him about this stuff and kind of fill him in on where I was at. To Tom Doherty, who was the publisher of Tor Books, to my editor, Patrick Nielsen Hayden, and Fritz Foy, who's now the publisher of Tor. Uh, all of those people have always supported this and they've looked on it since the very first book, right? Since down in the magic kingdom where, where I did the first ever creative commons novel with my first novel, they've said, you know, like we've got to figure out this digital stuff. Mm -hmm. And, you know, honestly, like the, you know, they're, they are making money from digital. Digital is finally a thing that makes money. When I did down in the magic kingdom, my editor 
uh, said, um, one of the reasons we're letting you do this is that ebooks have the worst ratio of hours and meetings to dollars and revenue of anything <laughs> this press has ever done. Right? It was just so much hot air. Right. But they figured it out. But unfortunately, the way that they figured it out is to effectively put Amazon in the driver's seat. Right. And, you know, it's it's like it's a slow motion version of if you remember borders couldn't figure out how to do e-commerce. Yep. So they made Amazon the fulfillment partner <laughs> for borders yep. and then went bankrupt, like totally unsurprisingly. And it's a kind of a slow motion version of this. It wasn't, and it wasn't explicit. It wasn't stupid. It was just, they got trapped. Whereas borders was like, you know, um, what do you mean if I put my hand in this garbage disposal, it'll feel good, right? Like, to, you know, they, they they were like, they got they got wooed in, not suckered in. Right. But, they, but they're still where they are, right? They still are in this place where, like, let me, let me, I, I think most people don't appreciate just how weird this is. So Amazon is a publisher. Amazon publishes, depending on which genre you're looking at, like something like half of the books sold, right? Because mm-hmm. of the romance, the paranormal romance. A lot of them are 99 cent books. A lot of them are Kindle Unlimited books. They are a giant publisher. And if you are Macmillan or Penguin Random House, which, you know, frankly, the fact that they merged those two companies and didn't call them Random Penguin is the worst thing about them. Oh, I my know. God. But you're Penguin Random House, you're, you're Hachette, you're Macmillan, Simon & Schuster, whatever, uh, and you uh, have Amazon selling your books, both your print books and your e-books. Amazon knows every second how many books of each of yours they've, you've sold. They know what other books sold against those books. They know what search terms people used. And if they're ebooks, they know like where the people were when they read them, how long they read them for, where they stopped, what search terms they used within those books. Um, if they, it, you know, if they want to analyze IP addresses, they can say like these two people who are reading books live in the same house or at least on the same network with the same IP address. Uh, they have so much data. And here's what data you get. 180 days after the book is sold, you find out that the book was sold and you get a royalty. <laughs> That's what you get, right? right? So I go out on tour, right? And people are like, how's the book doing? And I'm like, I think it's doing good. And they're like, how many copies have you sold? And I'm like, "Tell, ask me in 180 days, <laughs> right? That's when we'll know. Like, I know what my Amazon sales rank is, a number that only Amazon knows what it means, right? right? And I And I know whether it's a New York Times bestseller, a number that only the New York Times knows what it means, but nobody knows because books are sold on a on a consignment returnable basis. Right. So they're they're you know the fact that you ship books to a store or a, or a warehouse a distributor doesn't tell you whether or not you sold any books. And then the ebooks, you know, obviously you don't know how many times the the process that uh, sends a copy of a file has been executed on Amazon's server, right? Like that's not a, you know, like that's right. a thing only Amazon knows. So there, the outward indicators of book performance are very thin for everyone except for the largest publisher in the world who competes with the other five publishers, hmm. who gets all of it. How unbelievably unfair, <laughs> untenable, and broken is that, so, right? I, yeah, I mean, it's interesting because like, so so last year, I mean, we, we had put together this, this um, uh, science fiction anthology thing that, that, yes. that we did. One of my enduring regrets was I didn't <laughs> have time to write for it. I'm yes, sorry. Well, I, I know that you are a, a very, very busy individual. So, uh, but I appreciate that anyways. But I mean, so that, you know, we publish that through Kindle Direct Publishing. And so we actually get a fair amount of data um about how that's doing and so it seems odd to me that that is that only for people who go direct who get that 
boy, doesn't that seem odd, huh? Yeah. <laughs> but you know, Kindle Direct. I don't. Is it? Uh, do you have? Did you have to give them a perpetual license, or can you withdraw it from the store? You can withdraw it. You can withdraw. Is it? it. Is it DRM free? Do you know? Uh, it's a choice. Yeah, it is. DR- we we it published is. ours okay. DRM free. It was it was an option. Okay. Uh, and and okay, that's interesting. So we did that. But DRM um, free. it's probably not in libraries, right? It is not in libraries, as far as I know. Yeah. Yeah, that is really. I mean, you know, I think that like to to decode the difference between what <laughs> firms say they're doing right. and what they're actually doing. You know, if you look at the outcome then you can reverse engineer the motivation. You know, it, it like it, maybe maybe if it happens once, right? You know, once once is an accident, twice is right. coincidence, <laughs> and three times is enemy action. You know, maybe if it happens once, maybe if Amazon accidentally happens to corner a market once uh-huh. by doing a sleazy thing, you're like, oh, wow, that was a weird thing to happen. <laughs> but if it happens all the time, well, then I think you've got to like be a little bit suspicious of the motives i don't know have you ever encountered the inter- the term uh, chickenization i don't think so do you know this term no i learned it from zephyr teachout's new book okay. break them up her anti-monopoly book she's one of the old net roots people yeah and and she ran for governor of new york with with um tim Wu as her and, lieutenant and governor did surprisingly candidate. well i think did very well yeah uh, she, she's just a terrific and smart person law professor and so on so she wrote this book about um uh, monopoly and monopsony uh, and chickenization is a monopsony term. Monopsony is like excessive buying power. It's mm-hmm. when the market is dominated by a few buyers. And in the poultry market, three packers and processors control the entire poultry market. Hmm. And they have divided up America like the Pope dividing up the new world. <laughs> and so if you are a chicken farmer, there's only one processor that you can get your chickens to in time, right? In, in like in a meaningful, logistically sensible time. And so that is your sole purchaser for your birds. And the way that they work with their farmers who are notionally independent is they say, this is the exact specification of the coop you have to build. Here's how you have to maintain it. Here's when the lights go on and when they go off and which light bulbs you're going to use. Here's which veterinarians you can use and which medicines they can prescribe. Here's the feed you have to use. And then um, they also perform experiments. So they do A-B splitting where they'll tell one farmer to do one thing, one farmer to do the other. But it was, but they, only tell the farmers how much they're going to pay for the birds when they bring the birds to market. And they use the data, so they fill the farmers' barns with their own sensors. So they have their own sensors in the barns, so they know how the barns are performing, they know the chickens are performing, and they know exactly how the farmers' finances are, and they give them exactly enough money to buy another set of chicks, but not enough to get ahead or get out of debt. And every one of these farmers is bound over to non-disclosure and binding arbitration. And farmers who have spoken to congressional committees have been struck off from their huh. packer so that they can't supply them. And then one of these guys, who's actually like a, a local farm league organizer, then went into business fixing chicken coops. And the packer told all of the farmers in his area, if, you, if this guy fixes your chicken coop, we won't buy your chickens either. Wow. So chickenization is when a monopsonist turns their workforce into uh, someone who has all the disadvantages of being an independent contractor and all the disadvantages of being a waged laborer, where, where you take all of the risk and you move it onto the worker side of the ledger. You take all of the benefits and you move it onto the employer side of the ledger. It's what Uber does, for example. Uber is p- a pure chickenization play in terms of the way that it, it moves risk and reward around and puts half of it, all of the good stuff on its ledger and all the bad stuff on its driver's ledger. And um, ch- publishing 
and authorship are being chickenized by Amazon. And a, a, an important weapon that they use for that chickenization is DRM, which acts as like this perpetual log. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and I know I've talked for a bunch, but there's one thing I've been, I really <laughs> wanted to say to you going in that I yeah. just remembered. If I can, So you know how like you and I sometimes talk about how the term intellectual property is incoherent. We shouldn't say IP. Mm-hmm. Um, we should, if we have to talk about copyright and patents and trademarks together, we should use the old word, the author's monopoly. And you know that the people who we are adverse to in public policy spheres <laughs> go bonkers when we say this. Yes. And you know what? They're not wrong, right? When an author <laughs> says, wait a second, I got a monopoly on my works, but it's not like that monopoly conveys market power, right? I don't get to set prices, right? Like it's not, my monopoly doesn't give me bargaining advantage with other entities in my supply chain, right? So to call it a monopoly is not to make me Andrew Carnegie, right? Mm -hmm. It's like, yes, it's a monopoly, but it's not a monopoly like you, like you say it is. It's a monopoly like you have a monopoly over your bedroom, not a (laughs) monopoly like, you know, uh, uh, Mellon, Andrew Mellon owned all of the aluminum in the world at one point when he was the secretary of the treasury. That's an act. They called him the man who owned an element, right? right? That's an actual monopoly. America did a trade deal with Chile just so that he could get the Chilean aluminum franchise. They had to stop making warplanes because he wouldn't sell aluminum to Boeing, right? Like when he was the secretary of the treasury, right? That's what a monopoly looks like. And authors don't have monopolies. But here's the thing. If you are an actual market power monopolist like Universal Music or Amazon or Random House, and you aggregate authors' monopolies in your portfolio and move them onto your balance sheet, then unlike a traditional monopolist who needs to have at least some anxiety that the DOJ or a competitor will come after them for their monopolistic conduct, instead, anyone who challenges your monopoly, if you're an artist who samples music from your catalog without, without permission, or if you're an author who tries to give their, their audience permission to unlock their audiobooks and go to a rival platform, that pro-competitive conduct is a cause of action you can bring against your competitors. And so when you merge a market power monopoly with an author's monopoly, you get a worst of both worlds mm. that is so much worse than even Purdue... Uh, poultry's monopoly, right? Like, you know, they, they've got all kinds of ways to chickenize a worker, but the government won't let them sue someone who takes a chicken somewhere else. <laughs> now, Monsanto's patented seeds, that's a market power monopoly right. married to an author's monopoly. And, and that's why we hear a lot about, the, mar- about the, the seed business, not so much about the poultry business, because there, you can see how people who aren't even Monsanto farmers have right. to become Monsanto farmers. It, because if one of the neighbor's farm's seeds blows onto their land, then they, then they are committing a crime for not having paid rent to Monsanto. Right. That is, that's an interesting way of looking at it, um, which I had, had not thought about, but, but very, very compelling. It reminds me a little bit. I don't know if you've seen the law professor Brian Fry has this thing, and he 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 put out a paper earlier this year um, about OK landlord. I don't know if you've yeah. Seen I well, I know you're OK. I just saw the OK landlord thing. You saying it, right? Uh, but I, I, is he in favor of OK landlord or is he angry about OK landlord? No, no. He he's he came up with the he wrote a he paper came up with it with, with, of right. the idea okay. of OK landlord where he's basically saying like right. you know if 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 their copyright maximalists are going to 
declare uh, copyright to be a form of property, then right. they should then recognize that they are landlords. And if they don't like that, well, like let's let's have this co this conversation. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, it's it's a variation of the temporarily embarrassed millionaire problem, right? It's the, the Steinbeck <laughs> problem that. Uh, you know, copyrights are an incredibly powerful way to extract rent, right. just not for authors. Right. <laughs> right? I mean, they have some, they give you some moderate bargaining power in relation to publishers, but that bargaining power primarily requires that there be like a, a diversity of markets to sell into. Right. And that's, that's not really like the case anymore, primarily because of things that not things that publishers did, but because of lax antitrust enforcement. And and you know one of the things that we know is that is that firms that are notionally in competing industries like you know uh, Spotify and and um, Universal Music are not adverse to doing deals right? right to to like you know Universal accepts lower royalties for its artists and then um, as a shareholder in Spotify took in higher dividends right and it didn't have to share the dividends with the artists right that they, that there are like ways that that these market power monopolies can be stitched together. And, and so, you know, I, like after the blurred line stuff and after mm -hmm. all the, 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 the follow on, um, uh, you know, uh, uh, troll suits where, mm -hmm. where people were going after other artists for trolling, there was some action from the RAA and, and some of the other like lobbies yeah. and so on saying like, we don't want this, but you know, long-term, I think they're fine, right? Like, here's what they'll do. They'll say, look, there's only three record labels. Right. If you want to sell to any of us, you have to sell your groove rights to us. You have to sell your vibe <laughs> rights to us, right? Right. And and then then you just have this thing where anything that sounds, not not anything that samples something that Universal has, has got the rights to, <laughs> but, just but anything similar. that's recognizably of the same genre can only be produced by Universal. And Universal Warner and the other labels, they just do a, like a cross-licensing deal with each other. Again, you know, like the three notionally competing poultry companies. Right. And, you know, it's the kind of thing Warren Buffett loves investing in, right? Like if you look at his investment <laughs> philosophy, it's always like, I like to invest in companies where there are no competition and where they can all like uh, agree, you know, or there are competitors that they all agree that they'll take different routes. So, you know, like he owns a big chunk of all the U.S. major airlines. And one of the things that happened after Berkshire Hathaway bought a big chunk of all the major airlines is they stopped competing on routes. Right. And prices went up. Right. I right. Mean, you know, that like they're all it's like the, it's it's, you know, all the all those like crazy QAnon memes of the, you know, the octopus with its tentacles around the world and this idea, you know, like that, that the, the reason those things have explanatory power is that for so many people, there's this dawning realization that. Everything in the drinks cooler comes from Coca-Cola, no matter what it says. <laughs> and all of the airlines are owned by the same company, no matter what it says. And that all of your, you know, like it's all the same thing. And actually one of the weird exceptions is tech only because of the, the weird um, shareholder thing where you had all these tech founders who created these uh, dual uh, classes right. of shares. Uh, you know, the, the, I think they were following Murdoch's lead from News Corp. Cause as far as I know, News Corp was like the first one to really make a go of that. So there isn't a lot of common ownership in tech yet, but of course, you know, they're going to sell off their shares as time goes by because they're going to want to, you know, buy islands to wait out the <laughs> apocalypse on or spaceships to cower in while the rest of us die or whatever. So <laughs> I sense you're a little cynical about these things. <laughs> you know, I, I, every billionaire is a policy failure. Yes, yes, yes. <laughs> um, and, 
I'm trying to figure out where to go with this. This, No, I mean, it's, um, it's, it is interesting. And I think, um, <laughs> We've just gone so far away from from where I thought. Let's this talk about the Kickstarter. Let's talk about the yeah. subject of the book. Yes, I was going to say yes because I do want to do that. So, so tell us about the book. <laughs> tell us about the book. Yes. So, Attack Surface. It's the third Little Brother book, and the yeah. first two books, as you said, they're young adult novels. They star a young man called Marcus Yallo, who's a, a kid who is uh, 17 one day when a terrorist attack uh, happens in San Francisco. The Bay Bridge is blown up. And as traumatic as that is, what happens next is far more traumatic. Uh, The city becomes a a, a kind of armed police state as the DHS swoops in. And um, he and his friends use a network of cryptographically secured hacked Xboxes to organize a guerrilla army that ultimately kicks the DHS out of San Francisco and restores the Bill of Rights to California. And in the second book, he gets involved in an insurgent election campaign and also becomes the the uh, uh, repository of a lot of highly sensitive leaks about U.S. military surveillance around the world. And in this third book, we follow a different character, uh, a woman named Masha, who's at the beginning and the end of the other two books. And in the first book, she's working for the DHS. She's a young woman who's been who mm-hmm. saw the, the the explosion of the Bay Bridge and decided that she needed to defend her city and went to work for the DHS. And by the second book, she's a private military contractor working in a forward operations base in Iraq. And in the third book, which is intended for adults, and it's a standalone book, it's a book that doesn't have anything inappropriate for teens, but is, um, you know, is about some adult subjects, uh, not not sex. I think sex is a thing mm-hmm. teenagers do all the time. Uh, more like moral <laughs> reckonings, which is a thing that I think adults should do more often. Right. And and sh- she has spent her whole career first hunting insurgents in Iraq, then building uh, NSO group style surveillance tools to help block uh, democratic uprisings in the former Soviet Union. And now she has come home to San Francisco where her childhood best friend is a Black Lives Matter activist Mm. who is being attacked with the same cyber weapons that she herself built. And she has to have a, a moral reckoning with the consequences of a lifetime spent building technology that takes away people's agency. Mm-hmm. That having fallen in love with technology because of the agency it gave her, she has used her expertise to deprive others of, of that uh, great benefit that she has that she has experienced directly. And it's, you know, like Little Brother and Homeland, it's like it's a cracking techno thriller. It's full of all kinds of pretty rigorous crypto and technology Crypto, I mean cryptography, not cryptocurrency. Right. Crypto and and and, uh, and 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 technology and countermeasures and computer vision dazzle and adversarial examples and binary transparency and you know uh, um, people gaining super user mode on self driving cars and turning them into weapons and all kinds of groovy stuff like that. It's it is you know your basic verse verse chorus cool Cory Doctorow. <laughs> you know uh, when you come away with it, you'll understand a bunch of uh, uh, technological <laughs> concepts and have like enjoyed the spectacle of all kinds of cool cyber skullduggery but it's it's also a book about people who have special skills skills that are in high demand who because of the demand for their skills and the rarity of those skills actually have a great deal of choice in what they do and how their work is used and who still choose the wrong thing and who talk themselves into it one decision at a time 
and who wake up one day and realize that they have drifted in this stepwise fashion so far from where they thought they would be that they don't recognize themselves anymore. Hmm. And, you know, I wrote it as 20,000 Googlers were walking out and as people at Amazon were demanding an end to facial recognition and mm -hmm. Salesforce and, and Microsoft. And as we are seeing this great reckoning among people who, after all, only got into technology because of how much self-determination it delivered to them, the thrill that so many of us have experienced of networks and code letting us seize control of our own destiny, but who use that power to take it away from other people. Right. And, you know, Oppenheimer built the bomb and no one could, they might not have been able to build it without him. He was, he was not only someone who could organize the labor of other physicists, but also someone who had key physics insights that no one had replicated and maybe no one could have in time. And he built the bomb and as it went off, he started quoting the Bhagavad Gita and regretting his actions. And when, you know, he was summoned in front of the president, he said, uh, Mr. President, I have blood in my blood on my hands. And the president threw him out and told his, uh, his chief of staff, I don't want that son of a bitch in my office ever again. And I think that what we need are some early onset Oppenheimers, right? Mm. People who, who don't regret it after the fact, but who are brought up short. And this is one of the things fiction does, right? Fiction mm -hmm. is like the emotional fly through of the effective technology, right? It's like an, an architect's rendering of a world in which a technology exists and the emotional fly-through of that rendering in which you start to get an inkling of how it will make you feel. And that's why tech, uh, science fiction has so much influence on our technology because it creates a discourse, right? It gives mm -hmm. us a vocabulary for talking about the way that technology affects our lives, not what it does, but who it does it to and who it does it for. So that's the, that's the kind of the purpose of this book is to intervene in the moral lives of the technologists I've spent my life as one and among. Okay. <laughs> uh, hopefully that, that convinces many people to read the book. <laughs> uh if if and, and and seriously though if you have not read any of Corey's books before like you really should uh hopefully by the end of this conversation if you also have not heard him speak before you recognize that uh that that anything that he says will make you think uh will also often be uh, very as well as having very compelling stories uh, Thank so. you. I should mention the audiobook is read by an extraordinary narrator, uh, Amber Benson, who, mm -hmm. in addition to being a brilliant novelist, you may know as Tara from Buffy the Vampire Slayer, was my reader on it. And she does such a good job. She's read on a couple of my other audiobooks, mm -hmm. and so I knew she'd be great, but she really hit it out of the park. And and it was weird, because we, we read it in the first days of the plague, and <laughs> uh, the... Um, you know, we were all set to go into the studio on Monday and on Sunday, the studio called around and said, don't do it. So Amber, uh, had just built a recording studio in her basement. Her, her boyfriend is a recording engineer. Hmm. And so she sat in her studio and I sat in my office and the director, Cassandra DeQuera at Skyboat Media sat in her studio and we had a five day zoom call. Oh, wow. While, while, like we listened in on Amber reading into her mic and recording. And then the dailies went to my sound engineer, John Taylor Williams, who's uh, the sound guy at new America foundation, but has also edited my podcast for uh, more than a decade. And, and John just mastered them as we went. Huh? That's cool. That's the, yeah, it was I mean, really cool. Kind of neat to, to, I mean, there, there've been a lot of interesting things about the way that we've, uh, 
adjusted to <laughs> to to remote everything now. Yeah, uh, and that's that's an interesting uh, example. I know an awful lot now about like <laughs> things like StreamYard. And, yes, and, that I never thought I would ever have to master. <laughs> well, it's, it is. It, I mean, this is getting off topic again, but it is interesting how many of these little things that also like you know suddenly having to figure out how do you do this or that remotely, you know, and finding a whole bunch of different different tools that do these different things. Um, and and like I know I've spent a lot of the past six months just kind of exploring like what are the tools out there that do X or Y or whatever that, that I never needed before, but suddenly with everybody remote mm -hmm. becomes much more important. It's kind of a testament to the value of like pure research, right? Yeah. This idea that like a thing that is, that fills a niche or whose niche you don't even know about, but, right. that, you know, but it's just totally speculative and you build it just to, because it's an interesting challenge or you want to see how it might work or you're intellectually yeah. curious. And then it just turns out, Oh, Hey, guess what? Cause I remember, you know, zoom isn't new, right? The number of times people have said to me, why don't we, have a zoom call and i've been like oh, are you kidding me like over the last five years yeah right like oh god and then one day you know hey guess what everything is zoom now yes yeah no it's it, 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 i mean it is bizarre too because i i had definitely used zoom before also but but always with my camera off and and covered yeah. and and suddenly yeah. like uh, i've gotten to the point where you know i i uh you know, now suddenly need to, to use the video function a lot more. So it's kind of, I bought a, I bought a cell phone tripod for my hammock in uh, the backyard. So oh, that's I can an idea. have a, a, cause I sit out there with my laptop. I got a shade umbrella and I sit out there with my laptop all day. And, uh, when it's time for like EFF, uh, uh, team meetings, I, I dial in from the hammock with my phone <laughs> in the, in the, uh, on the tripod. Now that's, that's a good idea. Yeah. That is a, 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 a someone who has thought these things through. <laughs> um, Except when everything's on fire and the air is too bad to breathe. Yes. The rest of the time, it's been very nice. Yes. Yes. Which did I did I mention that the world is ending? <laughs> yes. <laughs> uh, we have all been dealing with so many different things. Um, it's quite a time to be alive for now. Yeah. Hopefully, yeah. hopefully we make it through, and we have unique stories to tell about it in the end. I think we will. I mean, I think that this is, I think that Rebecca Solnit, who's, you know, her mm -hmm. book Paradise Built in Hell inspired my, my novel Walk Away. Mm -hmm. I think that uh, when she at the beginning of the plague wrote that crisis is in medical terms, the moment at which the patient either gets better or dies, um, <laughs> that, that, right. that we are at that crossroads, right? We are at the time when we have a reckoning with what we do about all of the fissures that were latent that we suspected were there, but that we didn't have to deal with because the slow pace at which they were leaking uh, meant that, you know, they, they could be tolerated. And now that the, now that the, the, the pressure has forced this, you know, deluge to run through these fissures, we have to start patching them. We have to really revisit the way that we do it. Right. And, you know, I don't know that we will, but I don't think there's ever been a moment where we had more political will to do so. Well, I hope so. I hope so. I hope so too. Some, something something needs to happen because this is this is this is a problem. <laughs> yeah. 
Well, on that happy right. note. <laughs> on that happy note. Uh, hey, you know, it's not all bad. You know, Mexico brought in this, this uh, like, as part of their NAFTA obligation, their post-NAFTA Donald Trump U.S.-Mexico-Canada agreement mm-hmm. obligations, brought in this stupid uh, copyright law that was basically a clone of the DMCA, but without any of the safeguards. And then they threw in European copyright filters for good measure, but also without any of those safeguards. <laughs> and, uh, and, and, you know, the cool thing about Mexican law is that the Human Rights Commission can review it, and if they think that there's a problem with human with the human rights dimension of the law, they can just refer to the Supreme Court without any standing issue, without any plaintiffs, without anything. They just the Supreme Court just gets to look at it, and you have 30 days to get the Mexican Supreme Court or to get the Mexican Human Rights Commission to punt the law to the Supreme Court. We did it, right. you know. Like I, I got brought in on like day 10 and wrote like you know 12,000 words in 10 days, <laughs> and and worked with our NGO partners in in Mexico. Uh, uh, Red and uh, Derechos Digitales and Creative Commons Mako. And like we just kicked all kinds of ass. And now it's in front of the Supreme Court. You know, uh, Corinne McSherry and Kit Walsh, two EFF attorneys, uh, Corinne's our legal director, they just uh, testified in front of the Mexican Congress on this. Um, and there's like a really good chance that this law that, you know, in other circumstances, you'd be like, oh, God, not another one sailing through in the dead of night. Right. But this law might actually just be be knocked back. And, and you know, it's like it's not all terrible. Like the, the political will to do something about bad stuff yeah. is emerging. Yes. And it's not quite at that. Like I've always thought that the, the – the, the great risk of a lot of these uh, complex policy issues like climate change or whatever is by the time they're undeniable, uh, everything's on fire. Right. Right. And so, you know, you, like we are not quite at the point where our digital policy is irredeemable, I think. And yet and, and, and we're at the moment in which people are starting to pay attention to digital policy. Right. Same with climate. Right. And so, like, maybe maybe we actually don't maybe, you know. Instead of climate change being the thing that kills uh, 3 billion people before we take it seriously enough to avert it, maybe the pandemic kills 10 million people and makes us take stock of our uh, the way that we address crises, and then we avert the 3 billion dead of climate change. Well, that, that is the, the, the uh, best silver lining version I've, I've heard yeah. in a while. But uh... When life gives you SARS, you make sarsaparilla. <laughs> <laughs> okay well all right mike on that note <laughs> on that note th- thank you so much for, for taking, uh, the, th- taking the time and having this right. conversation it's always fun to talk to you and uh thanks to everyone for listening as well uh and we'll be back next week with another podcast someone